Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are still in Eastertide, and today we're going to be looking at John 17, verses 6 through 19. And as you dig into this, you realize... Wow, <laughs> this one's kind of thick. So listen up and let's have Alan put this into context for us. Thanks, Christy. Um, our gospel lesson for this week serves kind of as the conclusion to the farewell discourse in John's gospel. Unfortunately, in my opinion, here the dynamic of us versus them that we've seen in connection with our study of John's gospel comes to the fore, really, I think, in this part of Jesus' prayer, if that's what it is. Uh, and frankly, it's hard to reconcile this with the statements in the other Gospels that indicate the Father's love for all persons, whether righteous or not. And so uh, it's a bit of a challenging text, I think, for us this week. It definitely is. So let's, let's just kind of dig in. And kind of in the beginning, in the introduction, he mentions the hour has come. So right. let's start right there. Yeah, even though it's not part of the, of the reading for the day, we really kind of have to start with the beginning. And, and um, I'll just say this. What's going on here is that this prayer seems to summarize some of the primary themes of the gospel. So here, once again, we hear that the hour has come. And that's been, Jesus said that in John 12. Um, Jesus said that in John 13, and so, um, of course, the emphasis of the point of Jesus' hour is that he is going to glorify God. Now, I first personally find it strange. This is one of the things that sort of raises a red flag about this passage for me. I find it strange that Jesus prays about himself in the third person in the first few verses. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think everyone catches that when you read it. It's a little startling. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and especially since he shifts to the first person beginning in chapter 17, 4. So I, I, that's, that's something that raises a red flag for me also. Um, but, you know, you can see a number of the themes uh, that, you know, have a lot of resonance with uh, what we've heard from the lips of the Johannine Jesus elsewhere. Uh, it would seem that this uh, you know, Jesus emphasizes the fact that the disciples belong to Jesus in the same way that they belong to God. They have Jesus' joy. They have received the word and the truth that Jesus was sent to bring them. And so as a result, he's sending them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so going on with that a little bit more, you know, what is the main, what the main purpose of this prayer then? Well, um, again, I think the main purpose of the prayer is to bring to a conclusion sort of this, this farewell discourse where Jesus is kind of preparing the disciples mm -hmm. for, his, mm -hmm. for his departure. And, and so Jesus begins in, in verse 6 by affirming that he had made the Father's name known to the disciples in that he gave them the words that you gave me. And the language here is that of revelation. It's the verb phanerao. 
Uh, and so because the disciples who are those you, whom you gave me from the world have received what Jesus taught them, they know in truth that I came from you. Mm-hmm. So again, you have this sort of reaffirmation of the disciples' relationship with Jesus. This was initiated by the Father, and their response has confirmed them as those who belong to mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Trying, trying to set this in terms of how John's community would have heard this, I think this very likely would would have served as an affirmation to them in the midst of whatever conflict it was that they that was going on and it seems to be fairly intense that they truly belonged to Jesus and I'm sure that was something that was beneficial to them it makes me wonder you know as I'm thinking about this with uniquely disciples because obviously when we read this passage we tend to transfer it to believers of, of Christ, to those who are called, and that's where our, our Protestant reformers are going to go. And I guess my question here is, to what extent is this designed to be aimed just at the disciples? Well, I, I mean, I think it is aimed at the disciples. It is aimed at all disciples. It is aimed at, you know, there's a, there's a, Jesus specifically mentions not only, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe through their message, you know, and so I think from start to finish, this chapter is really has in mind, not just the, the 11 disciples that he was meeting with, mm-hmm. but really all believers, you know, future believers mm-hmm. as well. And mm-hmm. so I think we, again, this sort of raises my, attention that maybe something is going on here other than just a straightforward reporting of, of an event right, from Jesus' life. Right. It, it, it almost it reminds me of the prologue to the gospel in that respect, that, that perhaps here the editors or the authors of the gospel have composed this prayer uh, to sort of summarize the themes that Jesus has mm-hmm. talked about earlier, but also just to address a felt need in their community. Okay. Okay. So one of the one of the things talked about in this prayer is the reference to the world. What is the world <laughs> yeah. here? You know, and, and it's interesting to me that the that the world is the primary threat that seems to be brought out here, not the Jews, which earlier in John's mm-hmm. gospel that seems to be the case. And and also if you read further into the Johannine literature in First John, the 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 threat is an internal one. It comes from those who went out from us. Mm-hmm. But here the threat comes from the world. And, and so here we're kind of thrust back into that situation where, you know, in John's gospel, the concept of the world is an ambiguous one. Uh, in one sense, it is the world of humanity who are in need of salvation by God and are the objects of God's love, as we saw in John 3.16. And as I was kind of surveying this, it seems like that's kind of that's kind of the main theme in the in the in the in the in the first half of the gospel. But once we shift gears, especially toward the end of the farewell discourse, we cut, we have a lot of negative references. So so there are mm-hmm. the positive or at least the neutral references of the world. That's thirty nine out of sixty eight references in in John's gospel, and those are primarily in the earlier chapters uh, of of John's gospel. But but the and the negative references seem to really come come more frequently once we get past about chapter 15 mm-hmm. and, and and so in those negative references the world rejects the light the world mm-hmm. is under the power of an evil ruler and the world is seen as as hating Jesus and his disciples and persecuting them mm-hmm. 
And, and those, re- those negative references I really see as, as kind of coming to the fore in the farewell discourse. And it, it's almost as if, you know, um, um, John 17 is, is just really a magnet for that because it, there's so many negative references to the world yeah, in this, in yeah, this passage. It, I think it, well, we could talk about this later, but I think it kind of can craft certain groups to, to take a negative kind of a negative mm, oh, view of Christianity. Oh, it definitely does. It definitely does. And, and, and here in, 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 in this prayer, quote unquote prayer, the world is not the object of God's love. The world is a hostile enemy. Right, right. So what an interesting shift. And it, my mind goes, I keep wondering as the author's creating this, what's going on in his mind when he writes mm-hmm. this, to be honest with you. You always mm-hmm. wonder if someone's banging at the door. and sure. but, um, but maybe not. So um, let's keep going through this. So this is always assumed as a prayer, and often we talk about it as a prayer um, to, the, to the disciples. But wh- whom does Jesus pray for here? Well, he, he prays for the disciples. He pray, and I would say he's he the the implication is he's meeting with the original eleven mm-hmm. uh, disciples. Um, but clearly, um, and this is another thing that sort of raises a, a flag for me. Uh, the, the temporal references are a little bit strange in in this prayer, and and I will I'll address that. But he. Um, he he prays not only for the disciples who are with him in the farewell discourse, he prays also for all disciples, those who will believe because of their testimony. So it's it's the, the temporal kind of situation here is fluid. Now, right at the outset, Jesus says he does not pray for the world, which <laughs> to me is like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. But here Jesus is focusing really on praying on behalf of those who belong to him. And part of what's going on here is that because they belong to him, they do not belong to the world, but rather they're the object of hate. And the world is apparently seen as an active threat to -hmm. Jesus' Mm -hmm. disciples. So since they are in the world, Jesus prays for God to protect them in the name that you have given me, which is also a fairly unique and and kind of almost a strange concept here Mm -hmm. uh and and jesus follows up by saying that while he was with while he was with them note that Mm -hmm. temporal right right shift while he was with them he had protected them in the name that you have given me and some have suggested you know the the i am sayings in john's gospel may um may sort of be uh, an allusion to i am that i am in exodus chapter 3 and mm-hmm. so that may be what's going on here but again not, the language not only seems to reflect a situation in which jesus was no longer with them but the extreme dualism between mm-hmm. faith and unbelief, between belonging to Jesus versus belonging to the mm-hmm. world, it just seems strange to ears, I think, that are more attuned to the voice of Jesus in the synoptic gospels. Th- and it makes me think, again, that, that this passage was composed by the authors and editors uh, or editors of, of the gospel, uh, similar to the way they did the prologue. Yeah, it, it, it makes me feel like they are... are are dealing with intellectual situations that are coming into this discussion because it's so removed from how we have understood Jesus mm-hmm. in the synoptics and, and frankly up to this point. And I, I, I just can't help thinking of all the theological 
pieces that are going to come off of this. Uh, I, my mind, my mind is curious about it. I think a lot of us too. It, it provides us ways to say, mm, "To heck with the world," because we, if if we are indeed. Uh, we belong Christ. to God. We belong, we belong to, God. to Jesus, so we don't have to it, even care about them. That, yeah, and that's the extreme position of that. But I, I, I see that happening in many different yeah. scenarios. But we'll talk about again more about that later. But um, um, I hope you're all kind of thinking of, oh, this really has a different sound, and and are hopefully starting to think of now how do I tie this back into the theology that that I want to use to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to promote inclusion with the world. So let's keep going on here. Is, I guess, in the view of this, is the world a threat? Is, is yes. that the piece? Yeah. Jesus, Je- you know, in this prayer, Jesus definitely frames the world as a threat. And we see this particularly in verses 14 through 16, where he reiterates that he gave his disciples the Father's word because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. The world hated them for that. And so in John 15, 17, 15, we seem to come to the reason why the world is so hostile toward Jesus and the disciples in this section of John's gospel, because here we see that the world is dominated by one who's called a ruler elsewhere, who is identified here as the evil one. So as long as the disciples are in the world, they're at risk from the evil one. And so therefore, this entire section of Jesus' prayer is directed toward praying for the disciples' protection from the world and the evil one. And I think it's, you know, to me, it's that almost uh, complete identification between the evil one and the world that is that is jarring to me. It's you know, jarring. Th- there's yeah. no question that, there, that the, the powers of evil are, are, are in the world and are at work in the world of humanity. But to say, therefore, that the, the world of humanity is therefore the threat, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it almost reminds me of a matrix, you know, where, where anybody who's not unplugged could be an agent if you're, if you're, a, if you're a matrix. Fan. In other words, anybody who's not one of us could be an enemy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that yeah. that yeah. thinking is just to me very dangerous for Christians. Yeah, but we've we've seen it. There are sex that absolutely are on that page. Definitely. Um. So let's keep going with this. <laughs> we're we're really heading us down to a dark a dark right. space here. Um. So uh, talk to us about then what this 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 idea of sanctification comes into play right. here. So what is that? What does that mean? Well, and I think the whole the whole end result of this is that Jesus is going to send the disciples into the world. Mm-hmm. So, again, Jesus reiterates the disciples do not belong to the world, so he asks for God to sanctify them in or perhaps better through his word slash his truth. And it would seem that receiving the message that Jesus has delivered to them, perhaps particularly in the farewell discourse, uh, has set them apart from the world. We saw that earlier, you know, with, with his word cleansing them in, in John 15. And, and of course, they keep his word. This is one of the themes that is, that is in, in this section as well, in this chapter. They keep his word as they carry out their discipleship with faithful obedience. Now, the only other place where the verb hagiazo or sanctify mm-hmm. occurs in John's gospel is John 10, 36, where Jesus calls himself the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. And so it appeared there that Sanctify in John's gospel is almost similar to choosing, Mm -hmm. especially choosing for the sake of uh, carrying out a purpose. 
Uh, now, and so it would seem that in the context of this prayer, then, that the disciples are sanctified and that they are chosen to be sent into the world. On the other hand, then the next verse follows up with Jesus also affirming that he will sanctify himself for their sakes, which seems to have a different um, connotation there. It seems to be a reference to his laying down his life mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving on, um, the next part is the end results as just if you have sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. What again, this seems confusing. Um, with the sanctification process, but we're going to send you into the world that is is opposite of your sanctification. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, it, to me, it seems strange that Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you into the world at this point, because up to this point in this prayer, the only connection with the disciples being in the world is that just as the world hated Jesus, so it hates the disciples. Mm-hmm. So why is he sending them into the world? To be hated and persecuted and beaten up on? I don't know. It seems strange. Now, you know, Raymond Brown is sort of one of the, the great uh, deans of Johannine scholarship and uh, is widely respected. But, you know, he says something in his commentary that I have to just say I, I absolutely do not affirm. He says that Jesus sends them not to change the world, but to challenge the world. And so there's a sense in which Jesus, you know, Brown interprets this, that Jesus is sending them the, the, the disciples into the world to carry out that role we saw earlier of judgment, that Jesus, just as Jesus' word affected judgment upon mm-hmm, the world, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the disciples are going to continue to affect sort of this judgment upon the world because mm-hmm. the world loves darkness rather than light, because right. the world hates Jesus, because the world, you know, in John 16, the world does not receive uh, the truth of the Spirit. And even in this chapter, um, Jesus will say at the end of the, of this prayer, uh, the world does not know God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it seems strange and, you know, I can't affirm what Brown says that, you know, Jesus is sending them into the world to sort of provoke this conflict. Now, by contrast, G.R. Beasley Murray, who is another Mm -hmm. highly respected Johannine scholar, completely bypasses this whole issue of the world as a threat and interprets the disciples' relationship with the world in, in the positive terms that we see earlier in the gospel. So he just kind of bypasses this and just kind of ignores the whole problem, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I find just incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's definitely here, and it's definitely part of this writing. So to kind of jump yeah. over it, so it's working through it. And yeah. I think I think we're finding this is a hard one to work through. And it of is. course, when we preach on it, we, you know, we're kind of given this small amount to, to take from it. So, well, and, <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, in fairness to Beasley Murray, in the conclusion of the prayer, there is some sort of redemptive language mm-hmm, regarding mm-hmm. the disciples and their role in the world. But again, it's mixed with a primarily negative view of the world. It's all it's all there. Yeah. So it's, it's just hard to... I don't. I don't buy either one of those approaches. That either, right. that Jesus is sending his disciples into the world to provoke conflict and to, to carry out judgment, nor that you know, oh, we should just see this in light of God so loved the world. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I do think there's a sense that sometimes we feel very alienated by the world that we're in, and mm-hmm. and so you wonder if there's some sense of your experience right. of the world is evil. Um, and, and, and bad, and you're going to be sent out into it. Well, and one commentator, Ernst Hainchen, pointed out that very likely they felt somewhat peculiar in their world 
but to what extent maybe did their own behavior provoke that experience, mm. right? Mm. And I think, I think we see that all the time. And I think we've seen that throughout the history of the church. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. All right. So let's keep going on. Just uh, the, the main other pieces you have here are talking about the world itself. So let, let me just put that out there. What other pieces about this world do we need to be in tune with? Well, I'll have to say for me, theologically, biblically, it's hard for me to ascribe this language about the world to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where I go back to the, to the thought that, that, and it's not just my thought, but the thought that um, this reads a lot like something that the we mm-hmm. of John 21, 25, we know that his testimony is true, whoever put mm-hmm. the gospel in its final form. Uh, this seems like uh, it reads like the prologue. It, it feels like that, you know, that that someone is 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 compiling sort of a summary of themes, but also I think reading their historical situation and and taking their historical situation and placing it on the lips of Jesus, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. much so. And and so you know, I mean, part of the problem is it runs directly contrary to much of what Jesus says about his mission and the mission of his disciples and the Synoptic Gospels. And I even think about you know the communities addressed by the other Gospels, like Mark and Matthew. They were under pressure from opponents, right? But there's no such thoroughgoing negative assessment of all humankind as what we find here. And so I can only make sense of this either by seeing it as a reflection of perhaps the severe threat to which the Johannine community felt themselves exposed, or maybe viewing it as the influence of an excessively apocalyptic theology among that community. And maybe it's a combination of both, really. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I, as Alan was talking about this, I was um, I was thinking about one of my uh, one of my seminary professors. He is a good friend, Tim Mackey. He's in charge of the Bible Project. But but Tim Mackey um, was talking about how the Gospel of John. Sometimes he feels like John, the author, is like peeking in on his own experience. You see these glimpses of him peeking in, and I feel like this is part of his coming in from his perspective into the story that he's trying to create. So. And we know that with John right. as a whole, right? We right. know that. Well, we that, saw that before with John three. I, I really think that the, the the last part of John three is 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 John peeking in on the story of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. This all kind of makes sense, but we just have to have our our awareness up. Yeah. And how we look at it, and the problem with how we do the revised common lectionary is we just jump into a passage, I know, and we I know. and so it's hard. Um, well, and we're also we're also kind of t- sort of we we approach the gospels with the expectation that they're telling us the real Jesus, right? Right. And and you know I'm I don't want to say I don't want to say that that John's gospel here is not presenting us with the real Jesus, but I would I would have to say that a lot of this excessively negative view of the world I think is coming from the situation of John's community. I think so. Mm-hmm. And 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 so the. The John, whoever that may be, the the final authors, editors of the gospel, the we of John twenty one twenty five, are you know this is they're bringing into this uh, very much their own perspective on what's going on with the community, and, and you know so here we have a situation. Some might think, well, they're just making it up. Um, you know, there was this this situation in the early church where. Um, 
People felt inspired by the Spirit to deliver a word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. We see this reflected in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you know, where someone may have a word of prophecy. Well, that's right. delivering a word from the Lord. Right. And so a lot of New Testament scholars have applied this, especially to John's gospel, where you have these situations where John sort of, you know, whoever John, the John who is the we of the John 21, 25, is inserting himself or themselves into uh, the gospel by by sort of putting their perspectives on mm-hmm, Jesus' lips. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, the, there there may have been sort of a prophetic element there that they mm-hmm. felt it led by the Spirit to do that. And again, I think the practical um, purpose for that was that they were addressing a, a very real and very felt yeah. need in their community. Well, and you can see that we've talked about these disciples feeling particularly persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and the people, well, particularly his, the followers in John's are feeling particularly persecuted and they're seeing it as we aren't anything like this world around us and how to make sense of it. Then this kind of provides, uh, uh, in a way it, it provides a, an encouragement. Look, you belong to God, you know, keep doing your work. That world's going to be an evil and harsh place and that's okay. I think it softens it from its appearance as we, as it just comes at us. Well, it at least enables us to understand why they had such a negative mm-hmm. view of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also helps just to, to say, you know, I don't think this was Jesus' view of the world. Right. I think we can say that. I, I think don't we think can this too. was Jesus' view of the right. world. Right, right. I think this was, the, this, was, this was the authors, editors of John's Gospel. This was their view of the world, mm-hmm. and they were, they, were, they were in their minds perhaps... In, led by the Spirit to to uh, deliver this message uh, to their community by placing it on the lips of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's um, let's keep going on. Uh, so because we, I think we want to come back and visit this again of how mm. to preach this because this mm. sounds a little alarming for it some does. folks right it now. Is how do we I preach know. something that's a discourse by Jesus and say it's not by Jesus? Wow, we're gonna everyone's gonna leave. So, but we'll come back to that because I think. Um, we do have some positive pieces that come out of this. So tell tell us about. Well, let me let me let me uh, let me let me take just a pause here. And, okay. and, and you know, one of the things I want to reflect on this is is just the situation from a historical point of view because it's not a straightforward thing to try to identify historically what that threat that that the Johannian community felt might have been. Um, the only other place where we hear such negative language about the world is in the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. where the threat is clearly Rome, but we really have no evidence of an ongoing, thoroughgoing, you know, persecution of Christians in Asia Minor, where Jesus, communi- uh, John's community seems to have been located. Uh, and, and so the only other possibility I could think of is that is that in light of the setting in Asia Minor, perhaps this language about the world as a threat reflected the Johannian community's experience of living in a society that was filled with the worship of other gods. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I don't see this as an active threat. I see this more as a passive threat, you mm-hmm. know, that they felt threatened because they, they felt so different from from everyone else. I think I mean I think we can we can feel that in our own time, right? I mean how many of us have felt even though we can look at our world and say, well, gosh, we have all these advantages, we could still feel that threat. Um, Even even though you're right, there probably wasn't as identified active persecutions, they were still a minority. They were still at risk. They were still disliked by the Roman government. We'd see little flares here and there, and they knew that could happen at Mm -hmm. any time. So Mm -hmm. 
again, there's a threat there. There's a disdain and dislike for them. They, they don't fit in. They, they don't, don't fit, fit in. in. They're square pegs in round holes. Uh, yeah. And I get that. I would push back a little bit and say that I think that the threat we feel from the world is not uh, specifically because we are Christians. R- rather that we as people have that experience of feeling mm, threatened. Sure. Um, uh, but sure. no, I, I do agree well, with and that. I, I point that out because there are people, and we know, unfortunately, there are many Christian readers of John's Gospel who don't have the ability to be able to place this concept of the world in John's gospel into its historical context. And so they just kind of read this almost entirely harsh assessment of humankind, and they just lift this language up and and out of its original setting and apply it, just kind of stick it onto their experience with society at large today, and the world is a threat. Well, um, you know, um, I... I can't say that I have ever experienced a threat from people who were not Christians in my life experience. In fact, the mo- the worst things that have been done to me have been done by people in the church. Right, right. <laughs> so. Exactly. But that but the argument would be that those people are pretenders and they're not truly, and yeah. now this is going into Cal- deep Calvinism, that they're not truly the elect. I know. Because... And so they would say that those are all false Christians out there who are acting in this particular way that are the threat. I think that's a little bit too convenient. I, 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 think, I think so too, yeah. but I, I think <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't agree with that assessment. But that is certainly where it yeah. where it hits. Um, and I would push back because you're not a woman. That's true. Um, that's true. And and I have felt that I have felt that pushback in the classroom. Yeah. I have felt that pushback from as a Christian. Um, as 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 a Christian woman, absolutely, yeah, yeah. you know, you have no no right. Um, uh-huh. You have no right preaching gospel or whatever. And of course, that's I'm mostly in Christian community, but outside of that as well, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's I, uh, yeah, from all positions. Well, I think it's clear that living the life of discipleship to Christ puts one out of step with the way most people do things. You know, there are all kinds of those choices that seem to that seem to be a part of what it means to follow Jesus that, uh, that, are, out of that are out of sync with the worst of the world. Well, why don't we finish out your section again, following into this positive note? Yeah, that, I mean, um, I think if there is a positive note in the prayer, and, and there is a positive note, I would say, it is that Jesus is praying for his disciples, as well as those who will come to believe through their testimony, to have the same unity that Jesus shares with the Father. And the purpose of their unity, then, is stated in verse 21, that so the world may believe that you have sent me. And that seems to be a very positive note. I think in another sense, another really positive note about this prayer is that it seems to resonate with Jesus' final cry from the cross, it is finished in John 19.30. So the idea in the prayer, you, you sort of get this feel as you're, as you're going through this chapter is that, that Jesus has accomplished his mission. He's accomplished his mission of glorifying the Father. He's completed the task of delivering the word and the truth that the Father gave him. And so the end result now is that the disciples are prepared to take up the work of delivering that message to the world as they live out their own faithful discipleship after his departure. And so there is this sense of Jesus having, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the chapter sort of reflects that Jesus has completed his work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think 
I think that definitely has a, a, a positive thought to it. And as you were talking about this, I also was thinking in terms of, I mean, I guess there's a sense of safety in a father with the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, the yes. sense of, yes. of, of, Hey, you're not alone. You're right. not alone in right. this, this sense of persecution. Whatever so. threat you may feel, you know, the, 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 this prayer definitely emphasizes that we are, we are in the father's hands. We are in, we are kept by Jesus. And this also is a theme, you know, right. that we have seen before in John's mm-hmm. gospel. Mm-hmm. So that, we will re- return to some of this stuff in our th- third segment, um, but we're going to look next at, uh, well, mostly Calvin, and Cal Calvin looks at this passage. All right. Thanks, thanks. Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, it's Christy's turn to shine, so we are going to just uh, jump right in. And Christy, tell us what Calvin has to say about this passage. Sure, sure. And I'm sticking pretty much with Calvin today, although we might bring in some other reformers, because really the gist of this passage for Calvin is going to be the doctrine of predestination. And this passage is not only something we find in the commentaries, but he uses it um, really in his explanation of predestination in the institutes. Wow. So yeah. it becomes kind of a cornerstone for that. It's like a, a classic text for him. Uh, ki- kind yeah. of. I mean, it's definitely one that he turns to in that in, in this particular space and this particular doctrine. And of course, so many of us associate that. I mean, if, if, if how many people that I come about at, <laughs> at, uh, in seminary that said, Oh, I would never be, uh, right. never be a Presbyterian because of that whole doctrine of predestination, which they have taken again, outside of the context in which Calvin introduced it. And, um, to, to note, I was looking at the work of, uh, Richard Mueller, who's a professor at union seminary. And as, as he suggested, this was never a primary doctrine of Calvin. Mm. And yet, it is through its kind of shuffling in the Reformed tradition, as the Reformed tradition grows, and of course is based in its organization on the institutes, it becomes all of a sudden associated as Calvin's like number one thing. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. Um, it really becomes a big thing in the early 17th century, after Calvin is gone, yeah. Yeah. Um, as they are, are trying to define, as, as the Reformed tradition is trying to define who they are um, in response to um, uh, Jacob Arminius. Right. And, of course, this whole controversy came up then. And, again, I go back to the Synod of Dort, um, where they have to define it. But what's important here is, as we get talking about this idea of predestination, is what does that mean? I mean, what's the bigger theological issue? And We've mentioned with theological systems before, and this is important um, for us to think about, is how does one impact the entire system? Right. So here, it's not just on whether people are saved or damned, but it's really on what is it, what is um, justification by faith alone, and indeed, what is grace? Because if yes. all all of it piles up on itself, so yep. it's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. So keep that in mind as you think about Calvin, because Calvin's really just part of a larger discussion of what this means. I mean, frankly. Luther believed in predestination also. He just never took those steps to go quite as far as to say, oh, well, some are saved and some might be damned. And people forget that. Um, Anyway, he comes into this um, really making an observation about how God um, 
is empowered into the nature of the disciples and how that they are indeed um, enjoined to God through Jesus. And I love some of this wonderful, if you will, Presbyterian language is that these disciples in their election will bear the seal of God. And you know, you know, if you, I'm going to give Alan a bad time. If you go through a, a Presbyterian seminary and you have to go through the ordination examinations, they teach you, you sign and seal, you sign and seal, you sign and seal. Hey, and I, had to, I had to take the ordination That's exams. true. He had to take them too. <laughs> he had to retake them. But, you know, they they really push that into your mind as, as Presbyterian language. And, and Calvin uses it right here, that this is a place where they bear the seal of, of God in Christ. So I appreciated that. And... Um, um, and here, there's this idea that in praying for the disciples, Calvin is identifying them as elect. Um, and uh, hence, he, 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 he says, hence it follows, their faith flows from their outward predestination of God, and that therefore it is not given indiscriminately to all, because all do not belong to Christ. So this is that interesting mm-hmm. space where he's really starting to pull out this idea of election the elect. Um, and therefore it makes, it, it kind of makes the world easy, right? Because the world is a place where the elect are not, if right. you will. Um, and it kind of gives a space for that double predestination to, to appear. Um, yeah. um, so it's through this elect and election that we know of Christ's divinity as well. Um, so hmm. it's this, yeah. Um, and uh, th- we know this through, through our faith. Now, the faith is something not that we do that is given to us. It's this free, right. it comes from free grace. And so it's, and, and he's very careful to remind us that we are not to go out and try to judge who might be elect and who's not elect. And oh, yet at yeah. the same time, <laughs> one would be able to identify mm-hmm. the elect, if you will, because of their response to God. Uh-huh. And there's a bit of a question mark in, um, and, and what what that response is, and one of the big debates that our reformers is going to have is, do you have the choice not to respond to God's grace? <laughs> oh, and and what does that mean? I mean, if 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 indeed you are if you are responding to the world through your faith in grace, you're going to respond as as a true believer of God. But um, there's a sense of of freedom. Do I have any freedom in this? And and this is one of the main pieces that that Calvin and his followers get involved with. And Calvin actually, I'll be honest, in my opinion, leaves it a little open-ended. Yeah. Um, kind of like, hey, leave some of this to the mystery of God. Well, I mean, the push comes to shove. I mean, where else can you go? Right. You know, yeah. because if otherwise, you know, if God is totally sovereign, then there's no human free will. And if, and if there is real human free will, then God is not totally sovereign. Exactly. So somehow you have to, you have to hold them in tension in a, in a kind of mystery, in a, as a mystery. And that really actually kind of puts where Calvin's position ultimately is. Yeah. But it, and what, I think, I mean, I would be comfortable saying that of my own position. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you can't, you can't go out and put out this doctrine saying it doesn't matter, you know, what you do has no reflection on who you are. Right. I, I, I think we all agree that, that that's not the position to, to come from um, because then there's no response to being in the church at all. And sure. yet at the same time, it's like, but, but you're responding because you believe. Responding is a reflection of your faith. So it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting 
uh, dichotomy that we have in terms of our own, I think maybe our own sinfulness, our inability to really understand what it means to respond. I'm actually glad to hear this, though, that, that Calvin also wrestled with the same thing that we kind of wrestle with, and that is, you know, we, want, we, we, we affirm both human freedom, uh, uh, but we also affirm divine sovereignty, and we affirm them both fully and completely. Yeah, yeah. And I think the problem is, is, is he's inconsistent in his different writings a little yeah. bit. So when you hit yeah. the Institute, you, <laughs> you come yeah, on right. straight on. It doesn't sound in, a lot like there's much freedom it's there. It's in book three. <laughs> I mean, that chapter in book three is, is pretty darn clear that mm. there is not human freedom, that, yeah. that God's sovereignty takes over. But you can tell throughout the wave of his writings that there is, that he is in this period of debate. He's also concerned Again, you have to think about the time frame he wrote as he's responding to those with Roman Catholic kinds of backgrounds where you are striving for your faith. He comes from, and we forget this about Calvin, but I keep emphasizing it, um, he comes from a sense of assurance. You need to be assured mm. that you are saved. Now, this is a time when people are out buying indulgences to assure their mm-hmm. salvation, that they don't, they don't that they are constantly in that sin cycle and worried about, am I saved? Are my loved ones the saved? constant doubt. Exactly. Yeah. That eats up um, this, yeah. this religious fervor at the time, and he wants people to feel assured in their faith. So their, their concentration isn't on, have I done enough, but rather on, that they're responding in faith and, and, and love to the world. And, and again, I would say, you know, I would, I, would, I would see that as being my focus as well. You know, the focus of election, the focus of predestination is on, is on that sort of assurance mm-hmm. that God loves you and God has chosen you before the foundation exactly. of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But of course, the, especially I think, it, I think a couple things go on in our modern world when we're just full of skepticism anyway and that God could be tricking us anyway and all these pieces <laughs> that, well, I just think that's part of the, yeah. the, skeptics, the skeptical no, yeah, world. Yeah. And also our, our desire to have all the facts in place, this mm-hmm. and this and this and this. We don't like mystery. We want it to line up rationally. Yeah. And very it, clearly. And, and clearly, and, and I think to some extent they did too, but at least Calvin gave some space, a little space here for saying, this is part of the mystery. <laughs> So, um, cool. yeah, it, it's kind of cool. Um, so, so let's move on. I just want to talk a little bit more about this whole problem of, of predestination, though, for, for the Reformation. Because, obviously, this all is, all is tied up with various parts of, in particular, Reformed theology, but, but also in response to the Roman Catholics. I think I've mentioned it before, um, but this... The ideas really were formed. I mean, one could actually tie ideas of predestination to Augustine. Of course. Obviously. Oh yeah. Um, and so they're they're coming off of this church fathers thought, and it, then it, it evolves itself into the medieval theologians as well. And um, but then once you hit the Reformation, you get a real sense from the Roman Catholic tradition at this point, at least in what I would call lay piety, that hey you could buy your salvation. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes it, it becomes so corrupt within the system. Well, it almost becomes like a mechanistic kind yeah. of uh, approach to salvation where you just you just go through the motions right. and you do the things and, and just the actions in and of themselves convey the salvation. Right. I, I would say that there's still folks today who are kind of stuck in that. Absolutely. Well, and a lot of folks like that kind of kind of faith tradition, right? It's very simple. You don't really have to do anything. And of course, you're moving from a period when 
you know, it's particularly in a medieval period when there's those who pray and they're praying for you all the time. And so I just do my bare minimum. You know, I, mm-hmm. I pay whatever, ever, um, uh, alms I need to pay. I, I do my penance. I come to, I come to the mass on, on Easter and I have my babies baptized and that's really all I need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone else is assuring my salvation, but they began to be able to, as they move in, as the church moves in, in the, in the middle ages into having more control over life. And that's mm-hmm. really what happens. I mean, marriage prior to 1215 was, uh, uh, you just, you just got married. It really wasn't a, an issue with the church. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, not only are we controlled, yeah. it's a sacrament of mm-hmm. the church. And beyond that, we need to make sure there's a witness of the church that this marriage is legitimate. Wow. So, yeah. and part of that goes into canon law and, and how you, as, as the church is indeed the body that's taking care of most of the issues of the world, canon law dumps into what we might see a secular space because it's, it's, the, it's the one governing body, if you will, that kind of covers all of sure, Europe. So, sure. uh, what a fascinating, what a fascinating piece. So you get, you get the church kind of taking over more of life and then people become wondering, well, gosh, if it's necessary that, uh, the church has control over marriage and that therefore I need to be in a state of grace and there, how do I assure that I'm in a state of grace while I'm going to confession while I have penance to do. And it just starts to escalate. So by the time you get now, uh, to, to the 16th century, you are getting a heightened awareness of the, of your spiritual life being important for, um, your salvation. Mm. Individuals are in a more, in a real different way. Um, so, that all comes into play here as you know these reformers are trying to understand really how this happens and um of course um we, luther um faith alone that faith is given to you by by christ that's um and for him it's pretty simple but it's between he's confronting directly erasmus who is talking about look this is about more about what you do this is this is an agency that you have to do something. So Luther is 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 in competition with a rat Erasmus who's saying, "Look, you can be assured that you are saved because you're doing all these things. This is this is what it means." And Luther's like, "When you do that, you take away um, you, you take away the, the the sovereignty of God um, to save who and also." if you will, you take away the efficacy of Christ's death on the cross. So uh, yeah. we get into Luther's theology sure. there. Well, and it kind of comes back to that same mystery of, you know, God's action versus our agency. Exactly, and, exactly. And, you know, the truth, of, as you said before, I mean, the truth of the matter is you can't, you can't do without either one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so for Luther, this is... Um, there's this sense of that, look, God is going to ultimately be in charge. For Luther, providence is already predetermined. Um, but Luther gives a little space for it. We can sin at our own will. So there's a sense that you can you can have a, some freedom in denying the grace mm. that God gives you. Um, and that's a problem for your more strict Calvinists because they say even that uh, – reduces the sovereignty of God and in particular the what Christ did for us on the so cross. So I guess if they if, would they say if you sin that means you are not of the elect. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So yeah. you can see how this can move itself into a very judgmental kind of 
kinds of thing. And um, so there's each and every um, nuance in the whole discussions of this is what it means. Um, and then one of the big big pieces that in terms of, of Calvin and why Calvin gets stamped with this so heavily um, is he really starts to develop his positions in the second edition of the Institute. So we're at 1539 here. Um, and he is in a debate, obviously, with another theologian, a fellow named Albertus Piggius. Um, and um, Piggius argued for this cooperation between will and grace more more what our position might be today. Mm-hmm. Important friends to know that in the Reformed tradition, including Arminius, who is still considered a Reformed theologian, who is, you know, is completely rejected for his, his, his claim of our responsibility, that's all in our tradition. And yet we tend to pull out one little piece and right. say, this is double predestination and how it's defined. And I think it's a much... A, a bigger debate than well, that. Well, we tend to we tend to stereotype and pigeonhole people based on yeah. you know uh, s- sort of simplifying things. Right, and where Calvin gets nailed with this in particular is and the consensus Genevensis Geneva with a Latinized Latinized, and he has this signed by the Genevan pastors, and it really does reflect double predestination. What's interesting, though, is 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 what that means. I mean, for Calvin, there's a hope in a way that uh, there's a space in Calvin for universal salvation. Mm-hmm. It's hope that everyone is saved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting space there, too, that Calvin often isn't, isn't credited with at all. But there's space there. I, I hope for universal salvation. I'm skeptical that that happens. We live in an evil world, and where else? Again, this John, so we're headed right, swooping back to John right, here. Right. This indicates that, obviously, somebody are, so there's some reprobate. There's somebody going to die because there's still this evil space in the world. Um, so what an interesting um, space for this scripture to lift itself out, which I think is interesting in Alan's context uh, that he introduced is suggesting this probably isn't Jesus. This probably is the work of John. And I think that provides us. Or whoever the we that, 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 we're, is, that we're right? putting the yeah, final yeah. pieces, the final touches to the testimony of John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the other Reformed tradition folks that we probably talk about is, is Bollinger. And um, Bollinger uh, was one of the ones to kind of refute Calvin early on as well um, in, in terms of that, that sinfulness that you could turn away. You had the freedom to turn away from that grace. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, and then ultimately, as I said, the idea of predestination and associated with, with, with Calvin comes such after Calvin at the Synod of Dort, where you get that really, really definitive, um, definitive idea of some are saved, identifiable, some are damned. You're not supposed to identify them, but we know who they are. I'm, I'm adding that commentary in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, as, uh, as, theologically a system where again it affirms the sovereignty of god it affirms um that uh, the death of of christ on the cross um uh, for our sins that as as a if you will as a um, as a penance for our sins and so by doing that it says look um therefore those who are saved are saved if you will so that all these pieces are together so that's kind of a little um background of how that theology emerges and i hope it's helpful as we move forward well, and it makes sense i mean you know i mean for centuries the the church even before the reformation 
had this idea that, you know, the saved were in the church. You know, Tertullian would even say, outside the church, there is no salvation. And, and you know, I think... I, I'm not I'm not up to speed on my Augustine studies, but I, I would say Augustine is probably trying to, 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 to work at a more nuanced perspective on it, you know, sort of like was going on in the Reformation era. But, um, you know, for centuries, the assumption was, if you are in the church, you are saved. And if you are not, then you are damned. And I think the reform. To me, I see the reformers just kind of, kind of really trying to to take a more nuanced view of that, recognizing there may be some folks in the church who are, who are just kind of going through the motions and and you know sort of again trying to trying to clarify it a little bit more. But I mean, I think we're still in that space today of of you know how you know what do we think about people who are who don't don't seem to manifest any outward signs of faith and mm-hmm. it, you know it's still a challenge for us today it is it is absolutely yeah. yeah yeah even when it's falls right in their lap and so i think it's a i i think it's a mystery unfortunately that we're never going to be able to solve no, um, i agree yeah i agree well let's come back and talk about some implications for our preparation all right thanks christy thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And what was interesting is Alan and I both were looking at this passage. We both immediately went to Richard Niebuhr's Christ and Culture. Um, if, it's an older theological work, but I think even today his um, categories can be helpful for us to think about um, where we are as Christians and, and different ways that different Christian groups might view themselves um, in relationship to the world. And so I'm just going to open this up. He's got it open, ready to tell you about these different categories. Yeah, and, you know, do you want to guess the, the copyright date, Christy? 52? Close. <laughs> 51. Okay. Oh, wow. 1951. <laughs> I was close. Yeah, you, you get... You get the prize. You get the prize, Christy. I had to look again. We're, we're getting serious here, folks. We both got our glasses off, so we're, we're going to get serious <laughs> with this conversation. Yeah, you know, just to refresh our memory, you know, the, the, con, the, the categories that Niebuhr elaborates are Christ against culture, which I think is kind of the perspective I was taking on, on John's, John 17. The Christ of culture, where, you know, you have just a, a cultural Christianity. Mm. Christ above culture, where you have like this sort of um, higher realm, perhaps, yeah. as opposed to the earthly realm. And Christ and culture in paradox, where you have kind of like Luther's idea of two kingdoms that mm-hmm. exist separately. And then the place where Niebuhr comes down to is Christ, the transformer of culture. And ironically, he uses the theology of John's gospel to get to this place. And he recognizes, you know, that, that um, Jesus' uh, ministry and, and, and indeed our own lives as Christians uh, call attention to the sinfulness of the world and, and, and that that's a part of the work of Jesus, and that's the part of Christ and culture. But then he also comes back and says, though, that, you know, in a very real sense, that um, this is an experience that, um, you know, 
um, we have the Spirit given to us, and so we, we are able to, um, even in this fallen, I, I prefer the word fallen world to the word sinful world, but even in this fallen world, we have this, the Spirit who enables us to, um, to experience already the new beginning, the new birth, the new life uh, now, and we can also, um, in a sense, we can, we can share that experience with uh, those who are not uh, persons of faith mm-hmm. in our culture. And, and you know, I, I use the analogy, you know, we're all in this vaccination period. I sort of see, see a Christian presence in the world as we're, we're the vaccine. We're the ones going out vaccinating the world with God's love. Mm, there you go. Yeah, I like that uh, imagery. Yeah. Well, and of course, this is such a great book, and and I always like to think of it because I do think people come to this gospel and they see elements of this in this. Oh, well, God's against the world, so the true elect are going to be separated. That'd be maybe like an Amish community that really stays away from the outside world and only uses it temporarily. Or, um, but what what I guess I love about being in at least the Presbyterian world is this. No, we need to be out in culture. It's kind of this concluding where where Richard Niebuhr is, and so, but how to how to if we're preaching that, how we're trying to put John's gospel in into that context, sure, and, sure. and 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 how do we make sense of this evil? And I, I think it, an angle is something that Alan brought up. I really think an angle is to explain that much of this obviously comes out of the fear of John's community at the time. Um, I mean, how many of us will see something horrible and we have no other way to make sense of it except for pure, pure evil. You know, yes. I keep thinking of um, many of these mass shootings that happen. And yeah. so how do we, how do we, how do, how do we, how do we survive in that? And I think if we come at it from that way is this sense of assurance um, that we are acting as God's agents, um, that this kind of helps us with. Sure. Uh, as long as we don't get too caught up in our own kind of, ooh, I'm saved, uh, they're bad, I don't have any purpose out there, but instead of this is the reality of the world you're in, um, but remember that you have me. And I, I guess that's part of my approach to it. Yeah. Well, and I can see, you know, that pastoral sense of, of having compassion because, you know, um, there are many, I mean, frankly, there are many Christians who do suffer persecution in our world today. Absolutely. And and uh, even, you know, I, I, my comments earlier, I wouldn't want to say that no Christians in our society suffer persecution because, you know, obviously I don't have their experience. Uh, and so to some extent, uh, you know, the compassion of Christ would lead us to that place of, 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 of emphasizing the reassurance to people who are struggling uh, with their place as a Christian in the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, in, in my, in my pastoral heart, I guess, in, in the, 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 the compassion of Christ sort of leads me to look at people who live their life and, and life is hard and life can be painful. And, 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 and there are lots of, you know, lots of these evils affect everybody. 
And, and I think about the people out there who don't have the resource of faith. They don't have the resource of the support of, a, of the church family. They don't have the resource of being able to at least call on that faith that no matter where we go, no matter what we right. do, whatever we right. experience in life, God is always there with us. And so to me then, you know, my approach is to try to, I sort of go toward the idea of how can I as a Christian live my life in such a way as to share mm-hmm. the gift mm-hmm. of God's love that I have been given, to share this assurance right. that right. I have that, that God loves me with someone who may wonder, is there anyone in the world or in the universe at all who cares whether yeah. I live or die? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think there are plenty of people in our world who are in that space too. Yeah, I agree. And as, as I think about that, I mean, it, it does continue to remind us of some of the other calls of our gospels, which are, you know, to go out and spread the news. Well, Mm -hmm. if indeed you're already saved and there's no, there, there's really no reason to do that. If you, if you come up with a strictly, if a, with the strictly of, well, God's already predestined you, you are already responding that way because of faith, then there's no reason to even go out and share it. And right. I don't think that's ever been the real message. Nope. Um, and the message has been to share that faith, that, to share in the gospel. And one of probably a bigger piece of Calvin's, um, of Calvin's theology is this idea of sanctification that once you, you know, once, once you faith is, turned on, I guess, or it's moved in you or however you want to think of it, then as you start to interact and respond to it, then you begin to grow in it. Yeah. And, you know, from my perspective, my limited perspective on Calvin, I would, I would agree. I, to me, I've always seen Calvin as being much more about the sanctification Mm -hmm. process and not so, not, not really uh, focused as much on the predestination process. But, and that's, that's really the heritage that we have inherited from Calvin in the Presbyterian world is that emphasis on on living all of life as a stewardship of grace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of that other that other position which <laughs> is so frightful but what it does do i suppose and and this is where you know like I, bart who's a universalist actually you know i think the it, later bart the later bart yeah the later bart um the uh it, it does give space for the person that no matter how many times they hear it or how many times that just never, that just never jumps in. And I'm not su- suggesting we should be in that space necessarily, I mean, but I think it gives us pause to think about, uh, it, it gives space for what doesn't make sense, um, for, for what seems to be pure evil. Sure. Uh, sure. I don't know where I'm at on that, but it, it, at least it's something I can chew on. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, you know, one of the things I love about the Reformed theological tradition is that they try to wrestle with these mysteries that in the end of the day, we really don't have the ultimate answer to. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Calvin had his approach. Augustine had his approach. Bart had his approach. We have others these days that, that are approaching it from different perspectives. And um, I, I think it's the, it's the, it's the process of, of, of wrestling with them that is that is important and just not not denying God's grace and to me I think the 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 message of Bart that I love is is the ultimate triumph of God's grace 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And, yeah. And 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 yet he also recognizes, you know, that there's a need for a, a response on our part. You know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that that that's that's a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, that's the great mystery, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is a great mystery. It is a great mystery. So, I, uh, I, 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 I hope that as you jump into this um, passage, that you can come at it with this kind of sense of grace. I think with this overriding broader purpose of. As we were thinking about this, you know, as John says, I've written these so that you come to believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking about why did he write this? Why did he write this so that I come to believe? And I guess for me, this says, look, the, the world out there seems very, very evil and it's very hard to come to grips with it. But don't give up your faith because you, that world's out right. there. Right. I guess that's how I how I come. And at I this. think that's an excellent way to frame it. Really, I think that's an excellent way to frame it. And actually, that's going to help me with my reading of this <laughs> passage, Christy. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you, Christy. It's Thanks, been a great Alan. discussion. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. Bye bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.